Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. This is Dr. Simon, uh, Stories We Live By. And again, it is my delight and pleasure to have as my guest today Dr. Grace Jackson. And I just want to review uh, for those of you who are coming on for the first time. Uh, although I insist, if you like this show, you go back to last week's and listen to that one, because I think it was a, a, a dilly. Uh, Dr. Jackson is a board-certified psychiatrist who earned a medical degree from the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in 1996, then completed her internship and residency in the U.S. Navy. A clinician, lecturer, and forensic consultant, Dr. Jackson has served as an expert witness for the Law Project for Psychiatric Rights, a nonprofit organization based in Anchorage, Alaska. Her first book, but hopefully not her last, Rethinking Psychiatric Drugs, a Guide for Informed Consent, underscores the urgent need to protect the rights of consumers and clinicians who wish to participate in drug-free care. Uh, you know, let me ask a question I didn't ask about you about last. By the way, welcome, Grace. Oh, thank you. Nice to be with you again, Larry. Um, la- we, I, the second part of the, the subtitle, a, a form for guide, why, why is it if people go to the doctor and get a prescription for this this stuff, aren't they getting uh, informed consent? Why, why isn't informed, informed consent a reality as far as you're concerned? Oh, it's a great question. I, I think there are so many different you know, pieces to that answer. One, one of the biggest problems, and I had uh, just briefly introduced the importance of the particular years um, you know, in which I was obtaining my medical indoctrination, and I and I use that term uh, very explicitly and, and for a reason. Uh, medical school really is an indoctrination that does not either welcome or encourage, and some might even say actively punishes critical thinking. So one of the problems with informed consent is the actual educational process of the physician or the physician in training. Uh, in terms of actually encouraging or promoting an attitude of intellectual curiosity, which will last throughout one's career. Uh-huh. But m- more explicitly, I-, I had said last week that I went to medical school between 1992 and 1996. Now, this was a very, very important uh, decade in the transformation of American medicine for the following reasons. Uh, number one, the National Institute of Health Institutes of Health, I should say, had uh, or National Institute of Mental Health had actually declared this decade, the 1990s, to be the decade of the brain. Rather, Congress had done that, and uh, President Bush, the first President Bush, had signed uh, a, a proclamation which had actually declared the 1990s to be the decade of the brain. That was one thing that was very important. Uh, a second thing is that the major journals in the United States. Um, had gotten together and decided that they would formally declare the 1990s to be the official beginning of something called evidence-based medicine. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that meant. And then the third thing is that, uh, I think it was around 1997, uh, Congress had freed up the previous restrictions on direct-to-consumer advertising so that the pharmaceutical products were directly marketed to the consumer via television and in a large way in magazines, Reader's Digest, Good Housekeeping, Mother's Day, that kind of thing. Um, There were many other examples I could give you, but these are three prominent changes, um, probably the the biggest ones being 
the formal declaration of evidence-based medicine and what that meant. Another thing which remains relatively hidden and is completely out of the awareness of most physicians is a very important Supreme Court decision which is called the Daubert, D-A-U-B-E-R-T, Daubert decision. Essentially what this did is it changed forever the face of toxic tort litigation or what is called product liability litigation. Uh, and, And you could pick any pharmaceutical product or any medical device and actually look at how things have changed since that Supreme Court decision. But basically what it has done is it has raised the bar or the threshold for actually admitting testimony uh, very much in the favor of the corporations or the industries and, and very much against or in the disfavor of plaintiffs who are alleging that they have been harmed by a certain product. Um, all of these things are important. Back, back to your question, um, where's the informed consent in all this? How is the informed consent being lost? Well, I'll give you an example. When I said evidence-based medicine, some people who have responded to what this has really become have sort of joked and said, well, you really mean evidence-biased medicine, or, or when you say evidence, whose evidence are we talking about? And just to give you an example, a very important article published in the New England Journal of Medicine in January of this year uh, had been done by a series of authors who had actually um, had a chance to obtain the data that the Food and Drug Administration had actually used for approving 12 different antidepressants. And these, uh, of these studies, they actually had uh, looked at 74 different studies. They found that 31% of those studies were never published. So this is an example of what's called negative bias or, or uh, publication, uh-huh. publication bias or censorship. So if, if a third of the actual research that is being conducted on drug products is never seeing the light of day, uh, that presents a huge problem in terms of the quality of the information that doctors are receiving in their journals. Um, another problem has to do with the fact that even when a trial, let's say uh, some study is actually conducted, and when the study results are actually reported, who's actually reporting it? Well, one of the things that happened in the 1990s, going back to this decade of the brain, is again the continuing uh, continuation of a transformation in who was funding the actual medical research in the United States. And what happened in the 1990s, just to give you an idea, within psychiatry, uh, in terms of what has been published, uh, I have to grab a statistic here, see if I have one here. This was an American Journal of Psychiatry article from 2005, looking at just at clinical trials. Now, these are the large studies that usually enroll hundreds of patients to see if a new drug product is better than a sugar pill, placebo. Um, what was happening in 2005 is that 60% of those trials in psychiatry were now being funded by the drug industry. Uh-huh. And 50% of the authors who are writing these trials or writing the papers that most doctors are reading were authors who had connections to the drug industry. What is significant about this is that studies that had authors who had connections to the drug industry are eight times more likely to favor the drug they're talking about. And studies or clinical trials that have been funded by a specific company are five times more likely to be favorable or find positive results for the drug product. Essentially what it means is that, um, you know, whoever, uh, who is funding or who is being funded to produce certain information and to use the trial. Well, essentially what has happened is the journals, the medical journals, have become a marketing arm, a marketing tool 
for the drug industry instead of being an objective voice of raw science. And so the doctors who are reading these journals, like myself, uh, going to medical school in the early 1990s, certainly had never been informed by my, my supervisors or my teachers that this transformation was occurring. So one of the big problems is that the medical journals themselves, which constitute uh, a main voice of authority for most doctors, uh -huh. um, were being transformed into a marketing tool for the drug companies. Um, and a lot of this had to do with the Daubert decision. It had to do with the fact that the drug uh, companies are writing article after article as fast as they can in order to produce what's called a weight of evidence that the judges will then accept in court instead of actually going to unbiased, more objective, or impartially, uh, basically, research that has not been written with a slant uh, where 31% of the evidence has been hidden or, or altered in some way. So that the, the patient who gets this drug, who gets the prescription, doesn't get it from someone who even has an idea or an awareness of how biased the information can be. Right, and right. That what, there could be negative yeah. results or, or the side effects that are not being ever discussed. That's right. In fact, one of the things that happens... So that they and, can't make an informed consent. Right. The doctors are at the beginning of the informed consent process many times. You would expect that the professional who is recommending or advising a certain treatment or not is going to be the person who has done the most careful deliberation. Right. And so the fact that the physicians themselves are unaware of the extent to which the integrity of the published literature has been eroded uh, is, is really the crisis that we're in. And it's true crisis. It doesn't matter if we're talking about psychiatric medications I know, I know. or Vioxx or you know, statin drugs, you name it. It's, it's a crisis in, in all of American medicine right now. So why do you know about it and these other doctors don't? Well, I, I knew about it from the standpoint of really paying attention to what was happening to my patients. Like I mentioned last, last week when we were speaking before what had happened, I um, really paid attention to the fact that my patients weren't improving. And it was, I mean, really alarming. It was not the fact that just a couple of people weren't getting better. It was to the point that, gee whiz, I go into clinic after clinic after clinic and uh, First of all, everybody is on these drugs, it uh, seems like, for life. Nobody's getting off of them, which is suggestive of one of two things. Either the conditions are uh, not responding to the treatments or the drugs themselves have some addictive properties which prevent people from getting off of them. And we have to uh, talk and, about that, but okay. Yeah, so, so th there are a couple of things that were going on. And, and you know, what, uh, what has happened throughout medicine has been the clever and skillful repackaging of what were formerly regarded as transient uh, and in some cases not major uh, phenomena into reclassifying these conditions as lifelong disease. And what has dropped out of the recognition on the part of the medical profession, whether by intention or apathy or, or ignorance, is the realization that many of these medications are transforming or converting what were previously temporary uh, and or minor uh, phenomena into lifelong disabling uh, episodes that are now uh, changed in a very significant way by, by the treatments themselves. That's a really terrifying thought. And, you know, anybody who comes into our field, um, <laughs> what's interesting, one of the, the best teachers I ever had as a graduate student was a much-loved woman uh, named Florence Halpern. 
Halpern was an expert, uh, if such a thing could exist, with the Rorschach test. And she had done some remarkable work uh, uh, to make a, an international reputation. And she was a lovely person. But the bias that she carried was that, as she said to me in, the, in an interview to get into where NYU, she said, once a skits, always a skits. Mm. And that is something that everybody who comes into the field takes as, as, a, a, as a truth. Mm. But the data you and I know is not, that's not the truth. Right. That a huge proportion of people who have an episode that could be diagnosed with a serious label of schizophrenia recover, and a lot of them are better off because they went through the tragedy. Right. What, one of the things that's incredible, Larry, is, um, well, you, you really appreciate it. I think it was Santana who, who had said that, uh, uh, was it uh, Santana who had made the comment that those who do not learn from history are, are destined to repeat it. And the issue here is that if you teach medicine without a, a historical context, um, right. specifically psychiatry, which is uh, you know philosophical in nature, without the historical context, then you really can say anything you want to. Um, so that, that's one of the big things that we're missing is this idea of anchoring a body of work, whether it's uh, surgery or anesthesia or obstetrics or pediatrics or psychiatry, in, in the overall context of history. Right. If one could anchor things in the context of history, one could return to discrete centuries or decades, for instance, and actually abstra- uh, extract out the examples of people doing very well and, in fact, having full recoveries. One yeah. could even travel, yeah, one could even, you know, look at other cultural examples and look at uh, or even pose the question, what happens if one does nothing, if right. one delivers no intervention? Yes, and, 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 and what's, that was, I, I was going to just get to that idea yeah. because less serious things like depression, garden mm-hmm. variety depression, which... One psychiatrist referred to as the common cold of psychiatry. Uh, you know, depression is depression. People do get depressed. Uh, I don't know anybody who... In fact, if I know somebody who hasn't been depressed, I don't want to know them. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> There's something missing if you don't get depressed. Um, so, so depression, usually the person works their way out of depression. Mm-hmm. Rarely are depressions, at least in my 40 years of experience, and I'm sure your experiences tell you the same, most of us who are in the field know that depression is not a lifelong problem, that most people who are depressed work their way out of it. They work their way into it, and they work their way out of it. Right. I, I think it's it's a very interesting thing to, um, well, phenomenology, you know, to even look at what what is the thing that we are discussing, what is the human experience uh, of what it is we're discussing and, and how did these get carved into discrete or neat packages uh, uh-huh. is is just a very fascinating uh, discussion in and of itself. Right, but but right. this idea, you know, back to the point of informed consent, you know, which you and I um, could discuss for so long. Um, the, you know, the, the real issue here is the fact that doctors really received so little information. Um, they, they received so little information in terms of natural prognosis. What is the question, you know, what if we do nothing? Has right. anybody ever recovered from this spontaneously? Uh, and they received very little, little information in terms of um, what used to happen when. In other words, what other treatments 
were used before that were either bad or good. And that really sets a more interesting framework for asking similar questions about right. what we do now. Right, right, right. So yeah. You can't hard. understand a human personality without a history, and you can't understand a culture without its history and its context. And, right. this, is, and this is a prime example. So now I want to go back to the point you made that these things like depression are being made intractable. Right. Now, I always thought the reason it's becoming intractable is that you convince somebody that they have a defect in their brain or a defect in their soul, and the doctor keeps saying, you are sick, 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 sick. That partly makes it intractable. Mm-hmm. But you're adding another dimension. The drugs themselves might be making this intractable. Can you speak to that? Sure. I, I think you're, it's, it's really important always you know, to take the, well, what was really beaten into my head in my training was biopsychosocial, and uh, this was really uh, taught to me as uh, sort of the Adolf Meyer tradition. Whether or not he was the first to conceptualize this, I, I really doubt, but he's certainly got a lot of attention for this when he taught at Johns Hopkins uh, in the 20th century, early 20th century, and, and sort of laid the foundations for what then became the biopsychosocial model. So if we stop to think of what would make a condition of any kind, uh, a permanent, let's say, lifelong condition, one would have to examine all three different levels. In what fashion could it be biologically lifelong? In what way could it be psychologically lifelong? And in what way could it be socially or culturally lifelong? And so let's have a discussion on each one of those. Very Um, good. That's a good point. That would probably be – so If I'm going to do backwards first. Socially and culturally – we have certainly made it more difficult. Uh, let's just uh, pretend here for a moment. Let's pretend that we are living in an inner city, that we are a single parent uh, of uh, an ethnic minority who is 16 years old with two children by different fathers, none of whom are available, with no family to support us. And by assuming a label of one variety or another, one becomes eligible for certain financial supports and certain social supports. Right. I would argue that it becomes very difficult just on a survival basis alone to actually give up the the label, which now says you have a, a chronic or even a permanent condition for which society will help take care of you. And and one could even make arguments, you know, why should you have to give that up if if life you know dealt you a certain hand? But you know, the bottom line is there are certain incentives in place, whether a person latches onto those consciously or unconsciously, which make it very difficult for people to step free or to step step away from those labels. Now let's look at psychologically what becomes attractive. It can become very attractive to a person who has no other identity in life or no other capital M meaning, an existential reason for existing, to actually assume some role which is giving meaning not only to oneself but to others. So if I, in fact, become important to NAMI or to Chad or become important in my family or become important to my psychiatrist because I assume this role, which everybody says I have, and I am assuming certain value because of uh, accepting that label, right, right, then right. there are psychological reasons for having it be lifelong or more chronic. The biological part is the part that really intrigues me the most because I think that's really the starting point for a physician's ethical and scientific responsibility to a patient. And, and that is just getting back to the Hippocratic dictum of primum non nocere. Certainly if a doctor knew that... First do no harm, yes? First do no harm, right. So if a doctor had any idea or awareness that a, a particular intervention may in fact 
trigger a cascade of events that would become irreversible, then I think most physicians would certainly opt for a different intervention. If those irreversible uh, effects were in fact going to be uh, detrimental as opposed to beneficial. And I think one of the things that uh, I, I tried to introduce in, in my book and have tried to lecture on perhaps more clearly since then is to explain this notion of allostatic load, which is right. probably um, so, sort of an off-putting term, but I borrowed it from uh, a very, uh, uh, I, should, I guess I should say, a prolific writer and, and researcher named Bruce McEwen. He's actually a specialist in neuroendocrinology, meaning he specializes in studying things that affect the brain uh -huh. and the and the glands of the body, uh, the the basically how the body ticks metabolically. And he came up with this idea that the body is always changing, sort of a Buddhist idea, that the body is never staying at a certain flat level, but it's like always that. being yeah, it's always being challenged and stressed and tugged. And the ability for us as a species to survive depends on adaptations that we're always making. But what can happen is sometimes those adaptations themselves become stressful. And so he terms he calls that allostatic load. Well I sort of once I heard what he was talking about, or once I realized how he was using that term, I thought to myself, holy smoke, that is what the psychiatric medications do. And so basically when I, when I try to summarize quickly or, or easily, I guess I don't do that very well, um, but basically there are four key points to allostatic load and psychiatric medications. And, and more to the point, this is getting back to the question of uh, is it possible for psychiatric medications to actually kick off a cascade of effects that would make conditions long-lasting or even irreversible. And there are four different ways that that could happen. One is in terms of actually delivering direct hits, what would be directly toxic events. So each time you take a, a, uh, a, a drink of a liquid or swallow a pill, something about that chemical is directly causing a toxic effect. And the most easy easiest way to explain a directly toxic effect in the brain is if you are actually killing brain cells. Right. So that's one. The but, second let's stay with each. Let's get very specific then oh, okay. in terms of psychiatric drugs. Well, uh, and that is, do you believe that these psychiatric drugs actually create brain damage and, and, yeah. and destroy cells? Yes, I, I believe that the psychiatric drugs... Um, you know, to the extent that we can actually demonstrate this, and we don't have the best technologies yet for showing this in living humans, we have to extrapolate from animal models, we have to extrapolate from post-mortem studies of brain tissues in humans who've been taking these drugs, uh, and we have to use tests of urine or blood or the cerebral spinal fluid in living humans and try and in interpret those findings uh, the best that we can. We're always trying to find the best biomarkers, meaning the best indicators of actual brain damage while a person is still living. And we don't have perfect markers yet. People are still trying to uh, develop the evidence for the best markers. We have what? a very... Yeah. I'll give you an example. Uh, tissue transglutaminase, TTG, is believed to be a, a fairly good marker in the cerebral spinal fluid for Alzheimer's dementia. And it is considered to be a marker of damage uh, in the brain, that it's uh, a tissue response and an injury response. And this is something that has been demonstrated, at least in a study by, uh, performed by some Austrian researchers, 
that it is actually elevated in the patients who receive the newer antipsychotic drugs. Um, when we go into animal studies and we look at different species, because you always want to replicate these findings in different species, um, whether you're looking at rats, you, most of these are done in rodents, but increasing studies are, are being done in other models. The most controversial, but in some ways the strongest studies other than a human are done in primates, and that's because their genetics are so much closer to human genetics than in the other animals um, that, that makes those studies uh, even more impressive in, in some debates. But when we go into those studies as well, we see that the medications that humans are receiving are actually killing brain cells. Okay, so uh, that's... So there is a good deal of evidence that we should be skeptical about whether these things actually fix anything in the brain and that we should be really focusing and asking good, hard scientific questions about how they might be hitting the brain. What about the right. next? You had three more. Um, three right. more. So, right. So, so the first level is are, in fact, the drugs uh, damaging the brain directly? And the best way to answer that question is do we have evidence, in fact, that a specific medication, and, and then I think people should really do the research on this and take medicine by medicine. Don't just say, I think it's all of them. No, go do the research. You know, really spend right. time looking and at And the best one. way for people to do the research on, in this particular question, because I don't think we're going to have the time to cover it like we might want to, is to right. get your book. Uh, well, that's got some of it, and, uh, and, and there'll be future, future episodes and right. future things. But that is a starting point for sure. And right. they can, okay. it's very well referenced. Um, so that's one part is the direct toxicity. The second thing that happens with the medications is something which is called sensitization. What that means is that the medications themselves are actually going to create changes in the functioning of the brain or in most cases the wiring of the brain so that certain responses may become more intense. Uh, and probably the, the best, one of the best researched areas for this has been in the area of stimulant research. Um, and again, this is drawn on animal models and then looking at the parallels or the analogous effects in humans to see if by administering a certain medicine or a certain drug, one then gives the drug again uh, later and actually gets a heightened response. We call right. that sensitization. So pe this is the concept of addiction or craving, right, that people right. would actually want more. Um, a, a third component that can happen with medication. Well, let's say stay there a second because... Okay. For example, the, the Paxil or Prozac, do you get right. a heightened addictive response to these? Uh, now we're getting but They're always told, people are told, up and down, they're safe, effective, and totally non-addictive. <laughs> well, uh, there are two, com two aspects. Well, I guess we have to talk about what do we mean by addiction. To go back well, to addiction... Heightened sensitivity, to use the term you just used. Is there well, a heightened, heightened sensitivity? He Heightened sensitivity means that people will be getting even uh, a larger response with the same dose over time right. or, a, a, or an increased response. So the response itself is heightened. Yes, that, that can happen with medicines uh, in terms of people beginning to get, usually it's because they start to get side effects. Uh -huh. And the doctors, if they figure it out, will back down on the dose. They'll, they'll lower the dose and see that the person's actually getting a little bit better. So usually when we see sensitization with uh, neuropsychiatric medications, it's in the direction of uh, sometimes adverse side effects that improve when, in fact, the dose is backed down a bit or lowered. However, I should say that in the case of stimulants, 
um, you know, this idea of sensitization, meaning that people start to get increased effects, is something that we always have to look for in children. Because remember, we, last week we talked about how the brain is really still forming. Right. Uh, it's always forming, but it's forming with great gusto in childhood and adolescence. And, and one of the things that is, is happening in uh, with a lot of the dosing in children is that as the child's liver is maturing and as the brain is developing, doses have to be adjusted down in order to avoid uh, these increased effects of continuing on the same dose. So that's sort of an example of sensitization. Uh-huh. Now to get to the point of addiction, addiction itself has been uh, twisted in many different ways. Uh, a limited definition of addiction um, is to look at this notion of euphoria or craving, the idea that people take a substance in order to, quote, get high. That's only one narrow, limited view of addiction. The broader view of addiction is, is really more in lines with the terminology of what we call chemical dependence. Right. But That's what, what I want to get to. Right. And so I, I would argue that most of the medications, in fact, that are used by psychiatrists don't make people feel good. Most of the medications that psychiatrists use shut people down, make them more withdrawn, uh, dull their senses, slow their cognitive processes, and are not the kind of medications that people want to take in order to feel more spirited or more alive. Again, the stimulants would be one of the real exceptions to this, and uh, there are some other paradoxical responses, like some people can drink alcohol and, and become louder or more gregarious. Other people drink alcohol and just become more withdrawn. Well, you know, I wanted to point out, one of the sites I send people to uh, who have a problem with, with Paxil, for example, mm-hmm. is called PaxilProgress.org, www.PaxilProgress.org. And there are now thousands and thousands of people who claim that if they try to get off these drugs like Prozac, Paxil, the SSRIs, the serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs, they have a horrible time. Right. Um, can you talk to that for a moment? Sure. That, that's sort of getting into this point of, of what we call chemical dependence. Right. And, and I should say that, you know, the idea of a chemical dependence, you know, there are really, when, when you go through the, uh, the, the diagnostic statistical manual for, for mental disorders, and you, you know that red book as well right. as I, uh, this is basically the manual that insurance companies prefer mental health people to use in order to get reimbursed. For they demand it. They demand it for reimbursement. And uh, to actually become board certified, you are essentially mandated to uh, to memorize it, uh, or or the most uh, glaring aspects. But let me just run through here. I'm just opening up my little one, my little handbook. Uh, for chemical dependence in the DSM, you have to have three or more of the following. And I, I want to just you know touch this because I think it's really important to emphasize what we're talking about. One is in the, in any time in the same 12 month period, you need any three of the following tolerance. That means having to take increased amounts of a substance to get the desired effect or having a a diminished effect with the same amount. So something about the dose you're taking begins to wear off. Okay, that's tolerance. Uh, Second is withdrawal. So that means when you reduce the dose or you stop taking the dose, you begin to have uh, a return of early symptoms or sometimes even new symptoms that weren't there before. That's called withdrawal. Uh, A third factor is that you are taking the substance either in larger amounts or over a longer period of time than was initially intended. 
A fourth one is that you have uh, unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control your use of this substance. Even if you want to stop taking it, you find that you can't. Right. A, f a fifth is that you spend a great deal of time trying to get the substance or using it. Uh, a sixth is that you actually start sacrificing certain activities in order to get the substance. And the seventh criterion is that you continue using it despite the fact that you know you're having problems because you're taking it. Now, four of these are clearly satisfied by every psychiatric drug I know in right. most patients that I have treated. So what, in fact, the psychiatric profession is doing right now uh, is creating substance dependence without telling people that they are giving them right. substance dependence. So, so number one, that, these drugs are creating a, a difficult load, adaptive load on people. Number two, right. they're creating a chemical, chemical dependency. Let's That's go on right. to three and four. Well, we, we mentioned uh, number two was sensitization, that in some right. cases they do lead to, uh, to uh, increased effects, which would call sensitization. Sometimes right. those increased effects are increased good, sometimes they're increased negative. And then the, the third feature was to actually talk about uh, what we were talking about, desensitization, the opposite, the, the right. idea of habituation, that things begin to wear off, but now you're left with a chemical dependence. Right. So those are the three things so far. And the fourth one, so we talked about three, one is direct toxicity, Two is uh, sensitization, becoming more right. sensitive or more things. Three is tolerance uh, and, and dependence. And uh, the fourth thing um, is, uh, is actually uh, what we would call the recruitment of other effects. Uh, an easy way to explain this is think of the body from the neck down. So what is happening in the body from the head down? Now, most psychiatrists don't want to think about this. And, in fact, uh, there's a great deal of attention now. Well, because of the insurance company's schema and because of the demands that are placed on doctors in, in very, um, what we, should, we should say, high-volume, uh, high-widget processing uh, assembly mills, uh, assembly lines of pill pushing, uh, don't really pay attention to what's from the head down. But this fourth thing that I'm talking about, the recruitment of other processes, means the fact that just because you're taking a medication that is designed or, or believed or intended to work primarily upon the brain does not mean it is going to not have very serious and potentially profound effects on other organs in your body. And the effects that it is having on the other organs in the body will feed back and influence the brain. Uh -huh. These are very important. So the fact that we could take a medication, let's take uh, a medication like an antidepressant, like Prozac or Paxil. That's a good one. Okay, so you take a medicine that your doctor is saying, take this. Uh, the chance you might have some, some sleepless nights when you first begin, but that's going to get better. chance that your appetite might be a little bit reduced, but I see you're 50 pounds overweight, so in you it will probably be helpful. So I'm not talking to you personally, Larry. I'm saying... No, 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 that's okay. <laughs> that's I know. personal, didn't it? <laughs> I'm looking in the mirror. No, I'm just thinking in general, right? The doctor says, hey, come on in, Mr. Smith. You know, we're going to give you this pill, and, uh, you know, you may have this, you may have that, but don't worry. They're only going to be temporary, and they're not that serious. In fact, what we know is that uh, I don't think, in fact, it would be too outrageous to say that you cannot take a medicine that is influencing the brain or passing the blood-brain barrier and not have an effect on the rest of the body uh, because of the brain's connections. But even more importantly, there is a, a concept which I hope your listeners will become intrigued by or already know about. It's called endocrine disruption. Yeah, I have, yeah. Hold on have a second. Have you heard of this? Sure. Someone's trying to call in. Hi, who, who called in? 452-888-0211? 
Yeah, hi, this is Marion. Oh, hi, Marion. Hi. <laughs> uh, hang good. in, okay? Um, Ma- I- I- Grace, Marion is-, is one of my usual listeners. And, oh, terrific. Uh, so ho- let her hold on a second, and let's wind this up uh, uh, because we can or push this to another show because I really do want to move to something else if you don't mind. Sure, no problem. But what we're saying now, to go back to the topic we started with these four points, is that the psychiatry itself, and when I use the word psychiatry, Grace, I include clinical psychology. Mm-hmm. Not that we can give drugs, although more and more psychologists are terrified to practice without uh, uh, offering a, a psychiatric support that will give the drugs. Right. More and more of the people I knew in the field took these drugs themselves mm-hmm. as if there was some kind of magical elixir. So that clinical psychology uses the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, to the same degree as psychiatry does. Right. It justifies the insurance. And what we've been saying for the last half hour is that our fear is that we're creating, what we're creating is, lifelong disability or alternatively if you look at it from the other side lifelong customers and job security and stock market profit uh, uh, profits and returns yes so what's bad for the customer or patient is extremely helpful if you are in fact a pharmaceutical company or a physician or an insurance company or a medical school that is dependent upon the pharmaceutical industry. Right. So we have a field that inherently is built on a lie, the notion that people have something wrong with them if they have an existential crisis in life. Right. And that we're at the same time convincing millions and millions of people to to remain sick. We're making it in their interest to think of themselves as sick. And in fact, causing sickness, right? Marion, uh, ask yep. your question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. Uh, I thought about this when, when you mentioned the philosophical uh, dimension in psychiatry. And um, I myself have really difficulty to, get, to catch eye of this philosophical dimension in psychiatry. Um, I can see it in, in psychology, um, but that's a, that's quite a different thing, um, and I want to know what what is uh, actually the raison d'être uh, of uh, psychiatry, if you uh, delimit it from, on the one hand, um, neurology, which then would deal with uh, real biological illnesses, and uh, on the other hand, psychology, Good which I see, yeah, which I see is is much more. Uh, um, how is they qualified to, to deal with existential problems? Oh, I think it's a great question, Marion. I think uh, I think one has to, again, return to history and understand uh, the fact that there are, are two main problems here. Number one is we have arguably never really had a true or an authentic psychiatry, uh, certainly not within the field of medicine. Um, Secondly, to appreciate the historic roots um, or the historical problems or questions of neuropsychiatry, 
um, when we look at the examples of what was happening in Europe, certainly in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, most of what was going on was really being practiced by neurologists. And the people who were dealing with what would now be classified as serious or severe mental illnesses were actually in what was called the asylum. And so many people speculate, or where the confusion arose was in trying to delineate what's neurology and what's psychiatry. So I, I would not uh, not at all take issue with what you're saying, that what is the raison d'etre, uh, what is the reason for being of psychiatry in the United States today? Um, there's more of a movement afoot to actually remerge neurology and psychiatry as one specialty um, because of the fact that psychiatrists uh, on their own, and, and certainly since 1980, have... Uh, wanted to neglect or ignore the special province which was formerly reserved for the soul, i.e. the psyche. Uh, a lot of this was actually done, um, you know, interestingly, in 1980 when uh, Spitzer and uh, a whole group of folks, they were, I think, called uh, the Young Turks out of uh, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, um, sort of took over the writing of what was then becoming DSM-3, the third edition of the DSM. And, and maybe it's helpful to review that history for people who aren't familiar with it. The very first manuals to actually start to codify or to actually write a nomenclature, that is a classification system for mental illness uh, in the United States began in 1952. And that's when the very first DSM was produced, uh, largely by the Menninger, uh, Menninger brothers uh, following their World War II experiences. And that was the first classification of mental illness, but it used a psychoanalytic format. DSM-2 came out, I believe, in 1956, and again was a thin manual. Again, it was written largely by the psychoanalytic uh, field. 1980 was when DSM-3 appeared, and that was really the revolution in the United States. The psychoanalysts were essentially kicked out of the medical schools or increasingly being kicked out of the medical schools. They were being kicked out of the National Institutes of Health. Which means and, that um, psychology was being de reduced as an go. explanation Psych of these, these problems. Exactly. Just what Miriam was talking about. Yes. Psychology and the existential and the understanding of people in a metaphorical way or a philosophical way was overnight replaced by biological explanations. And that's what we have been stuck with since 1980. Yeah, I agree with you, Marion. There's yeah. another question I think Marion may be asking, and I always used to ask this. Sure. What was the real, you know, Freud himself said that he was more a psychologist than a physician when he developed psychoanalysis. And psychologists and social workers became psychoanalysts. Why? I don't know if this is what you're asking, Marion. Why yeah. did you have to be a medical doctor in order to be a psychoanalyst or a teacher or a treater of soul problems? Well, I'll tell you, uh, Freud is a, is a really interesting study uh, because of what has sort of come full circle. Now there is a big move. Uh, in the field of psychoanalysis itself to create something called neuroanalysis. I, I guess, I hope you're, you're probably aware of this, right, Larry? That, no, no, actually, I'm not aware of it. So oh, well, there is, it actually, sounds there, awful. Oh, well, there is an emerging field among those who are trying to salvage or to justify psychoanalytic concepts by now explaining them in the language of neurology. 
So it is an attempt to revive Freudian thoughts and Freudian discoveries, uh, human phenomenology in the language of the brain. Now, there are good arguments for doing this, and there are good arguments for not doing it. But the bottom line is what was happening with psychology and social workers and doctors. Why would a, why would a person who caters to the soul even need to be a physician? Well, that, in fact, is the question that a lot of people in the United States did ask and, and why there were fundamental breaks between the American Psychoanalytic Association and what became uh, different breakaway organizations that agreed with exactly what you're saying, that this was not necessarily the province and in no way should be the province of MDs alone. From my standpoint, what the the value-added component of the physician, the only value-added component, is to be sure that one has not omitted or neglected uh, the appropriate attention to what could be a true neurological illness. Right. And so it would be awful to be working with someone who's having flashbacks or nightmares or hallucinations who has a brain tumor that goes ignored because nobody has ever thought to consider that possibility. Right. You know, and I see another role, by the way, for the, for the psychiatrist, especially for folks like you, for a person mm -hmm. like you, although there aren't enough people like you. Mm. I mean, that's clear. And that is because of the growing um, uh, damage being done by psychiatric drugs, you know that when we fought, need someone looks to help to get off these drugs and deal with the follow-up, the, 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 the consequences of coming off the drugs, as well as the original psychological adapt adaptational difficulties that they had that put them on the drugs in the first place, there's no one to work with them. Right, and, and they're out in the know, cold. Absolutely. That one of the greatest tragedies of our lifetime is the fact that we speak about quote rehabilitation for drug addicts, but we have no nowhere in the literature any overt recognition of the chemical dependence and the brain damage that has been caused by psychiatry. So at the same time that we are detoxing people and rehabilitating people for cocaine and heroin and alcohol, we should be having detox and rehabilitation for people who are trying to break free of 50 years of brain-damaging psychiatric and neurological drugs. I don't want to make this more depressing than it already is. But increasingly, <laughs> increasingly, these so-called addictions are being treated with psychiatric drugs. Right, and uh, so that I love they're the substituting one <laughs> form of damaging drug for another. Yeah. The legal yeah, one supplants the illegal one. Marion, did, did you get an answer to your question? Yes, I do. Thank you. By the way, where do you where are you calling from? From Denmark. You're calling from Denmark? Yes. Oh, <laughs> wow! Wow! That's fabulous. That's fabulous. What time is it in Denmark? Oh, it's uh, half past ten, uh, quarter oh, to eleven p.m. <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> oh my God, Mary, that is fabulous! Thank you so much for 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 uh, joining and for being here. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'm Thank glad you. That you. Finally called in, and I'm glad that you got an answer to the question. Because yeah, I hope it really I answered is a it. Big answer. Well, I can uh, ramble and ramble. I hope I answered her because she's got uh, such you know valuable points. It's great. Yes, you you did. Uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you. Okay. Um, you oh, can hang on if you want. Yeah. Uh, Marion? Yeah? Hang on till, till the show is over. I, 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 I put an hour on for this show, and I'm told we still have about uh, 12 minutes, something yeah. like that. I thought yeah. maybe it would be worth, um, you know, just quickly.
quickly, uh, while the iron's hot, seizing on the last comment you just made, um, I was invited by a, a friend uh, uh, in, who's also in your neck of the woods in, in southern Florida who had invited me to uh, present at a, uh, an addictions um, lecture or, or conference. And so that's where I was in January. So I had, had spent uh, many hours preparing for this lecture um, and, and saving up the research and, and working on it in bits and, and pieces since last summer. And what the question I, I had had for myself was was just this. Um, what are the actual brain toxicities of street drugs, uh, including alcohol and nicotine? What is known of, of any brain damage, if there is any? And how, in fact, do those brain damages compare to the documented damages that are occurring with psychiatric treatments, including the drugs that are being used for addiction, such as methadone, antabuse, naltrexone, right, Chantix, right. you know, the new nicotine. I, and so I spent a good deal of time looking at that toxicity literature. What, what's interesting is that if you are trying to become a board-certified specialist in, in uh, addictions, you will not see this material in any of the textbooks. So again, you asked why are patients not getting informed consent? Because the people who are writing the programs, the people who are delivering the continuing medical education lectures, the people who are actually on the board of directors and, and who actually lead the certifying bodies, such as uh, ASAM, which is the uh, Association for Addictions Medicine in this country, uh, I think it's the American Society of Addictions Medicine. These people are not uh, either not aware of the information or not having the time to go find it. Right. But the very, you know, so that's that's key. The fact that we are substituting addictions, and not only substituting addictions, we're substituting toxicities, is what we're doing. Now, sometimes these toxicities are of a lesser degree. You know, it probably is less toxic to not be injecting uh, and to not be sharing needles and to not be, uh, you know, snorting cocaine. But still, the interventions that are being substituted are in no way nootropic, meaning uh, promoting the growth and the health of the brain tissue. They are merely empirical interventions that are designed to snuff out certain symptoms. You know, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, sure. I was, I was the chief psychologist uh, towards the end of my uh, tenure at the uh, big clinic um, in a hospital, Flushing Hospital, mental health clinic. And we had a, a whole methadone, you know, it was built into the, into the, uh, the building. Mm. And the, methadone, the, the, the patients who were put on methadone hated the drug because it caused far more physical side effects and damage to their intestines and livers and everything else than the uh, actual heroin. Wow. Very, very bad stuff. Wow, what I should say that, yeah. What, what they would do is that they were given a cup, they would swig the, um, the methadone, but not, um, not swallow it. Mm -hmm. They would leave the building, spit it into another cup, sell it on the street. Oh, no, no. And with the so, money, buy heroin. Oh no! Something tells yes. me nothing has I mean, changed. I, you know, and, and the whole business, by the way, I, I really, you know, I, I worked there, and in many ways, I loved the place. I loved the people, but the whole underlying atmosphere was to create lifelong patients. Mm. You know, after a while, there were people who worked there who had the same clients for ten or fifteen or twenty years. Sure, and, and they you would know, be, the, the therapist uh, would become upset if they had to see somebody new. Exactly. Because they hadn't oh seen my anybody. 
That's right. Well, you and I had mentioned, you know, after, after our program last last week, we were talking about the what has happened to context, and uh, and and certainly our uh, our, our friend in Denmark uh, can probably speak to this as well. The, the concept of context, the idea of um, of a phenomenology, the idea of philosophy, and and the idea of history. You know, we had mentioned Foucault and Deleuze, right. and the concept that in the 1960s. Um, this was clearly seen for what it is. The, the idea that people would create a, a category or a caste system of permanently addicted people, whether they yeah, are sent a permanent to Vietnam, underclass. Yeah, permanent underclass, which is very conducive to the needs of the permanent upper class. Yes. That you come to my clinic and, and help reward my $200,000 a year income, giving you Prozac, and I will reward you with a label so you can continue coming here to take Prozac. And I have really, to tell one story, because this sure, is one of my right favorite ahead. stories. After a while, I stopped writing letters to Social Security Disability mm-hmm. that this patient couldn't work. Mm-hmm. So they would call me up. And what happened, the, the, the person at Disability would say, can this person work? And my response was, the patient says she can't, but I have no idea whether she can't or not, because she hasn't tried to work. Right? But, <laughs> okay. I became a pariah very quickly. Oh, dear. They had it before they, they wanted me out at that point, because at that point I was really, I couldn't stand the entire system. But the, I wouldn't write these letters. And the client would say to me, you have to write a letter, I can't work. I said, how do you know you can't work? How about trying to work? See what happens. <laughs> You'd love to work. Right? Oh, gosh. I well, know one it's... day I walked in, and, and it, I had driven, it was a half-hour ride to, to work from where I lived, and I, it took me an hour and a half because there was an ice storm. Mm. And I staggered in white as a sheet because I had risked my life getting to work. <laughs> and my first client was a guy who was, was addicted, uh, a so-called addict on heroin. Mm-hmm. And this was before the patients weren't allowed to get, at that point they could get, take their Social Security disability check and pay for the heroin. Wow. They changed the law after, you know, sometime after that. He sits down, he looks at me. He says, did you drive an hour and a half in that weather to come and see me? Oh, great. I said, I did. He said, well, which of us is crazier? <laughs> he said, I sit and the check comes to me once a month and I don't have to work. And you're risking your life coming out here. I think you're much crazier than me. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to detract from the, you know, from the severity of, you know, the actual experience that people have, and, and I know that you don't want to. I don't want to either. But you don't want to. No, you don't want to. Itself, we're talking about. We're talking really about does the, produce this intractable. It says right. you remain a, pa- a client, you remain a patient for the rest of your life, and this well, will the, be this deal. Right. I mean, the the idea here is is. Number one, if, if you create an overall philosophy of care or you create a health system, uh, which is itself an oxymoron, in other words, a system that is not in, uh, interested in restoring people to uh, maximum functioning, even if right. it's not perfect. So the fact that we call it a mental health industry, I think some people, I think Jim Godstein, you know, my, my friend at Psych Rights, uh, has has sort of laughed when he hears people say mental health industry. He says, you mean the mental illness industry. Yes. And, you know, I have to just return, if it's the last point here, one of the things that I think is so profound is the fact that our own government keeps ignoring on uh, each each year you can get the printout from the Center for Disease Control on the leading causes of death in the United States, right, mortality and morbidity studies. 
studies. And you always get the usual, you know, cancer, stroke, cardiovascular, heart disease, uh, accidents, all the rest. Never on that list do you see the number three leading cause of death in this country, and that is medications. Yes. And then yes. I think number 11 or 12 is medication errors. But right. even when the medications are being used as intended and at the doses which are recommended, it's the number three leading cause of death in the United States. Right, right. That is the state that we're in. And until we actually had, well, we're not going to have, if I'm not that crazy, we're not going to have a government that demands anything better because we're not going to have a public that demands anything better. I think the most that we will ever have are a small number of careful, concerned citizens who truly want informed consent and, you know, who try to, to do everything possible to get it. On that, I'm going to have to wind up this episode. Okay. But it would appear, Grace, we need a third episode. <laughs> okay. And I'll tell you why. One of the topics that's near and dear to my heart to discuss, because I think the public has to know this probably as much as anything we've discussed, is the idea that, for example, kids who are going to school and blowing away teachers and their fellow students are all too often found to have been put on or recently taken off antidepressant medication. Mm. Uh, is that a topic you'd like to discuss? Oh, very much. I think that's okay. a very important so, conversation to have. So are you free next week at the same time? Yes. As far as I know, nothing has changed for so I'm going week. to schedule part three. And Marion? Yeah? Thank you for coming on. And whenever you, you like, please be my guest. Hopefully she'll call in again next week. She can give us the Danish, <laughs> the Danish experience. Okay. Oh, it isn't. It is much different from the from the U.S. Sure experience, it's not. unfortunately. I'm sure it's not. <laughs> well, that's all right. It'll make us feel better to know we have company. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So take okay. care, and to all the listeners now, and who will be listeners because we're getting a lovely response to uh, these shows. Uh, Till next week. This is Dr. Simon. And Grace, again, thank you. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Okay. Take care.
Blog Talk Radio.